0: Across the UK, Overnights,
1: with Paul Ross. There is a place I'd give the world to see
0: Where the music's play in And the rhythm's gently in Underneath the stars, a million bars Guitars are softly saying Columbia Fully no so one should you know, worth a because we're not actually going to Colombia. We're talking Colombia and a lot more besides. So now, mate, John Bonfiglio, who's based himself in Mexico for some time now, regular on this station, and now once again, we hope, on this show. Good morning, John. How are things with you, mate? How are things over there as well? I suppose Colombia, they're dancing in the streets even more than normal, aren't they?
1: They are, absolutely. Who would have thought that at this stage of the, of the game of the tournament, they would be the final representative, not just of Latin America, but of the entire continent of, of the Americas? Absolutely incredible.
0: And what's fascinating about it is, I mean, they've, you know, they've played against Jamaica, who had a lot of support and sympathy because they had to crowdfund to get there. I get the sense, though, in some Latin American companies, uh, countries, maybe, maybe the national women's side isn't taking perhaps as seriously as it is elsewhere in the world. Would that be fair?
1: Yeah, I, 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 you're right. I wouldn't say that it's about it taking the women's side seriously so much. I mean, there is a little bit of that, perhaps, of latent misogynism and, and uh, you know, prioritizing the, the men. But I think a lot of it is just... Financial infrastructure is where, do, where does the funding come for these, uh, you know, these national sides, international sides and, and the like. And women's sport has historically, globally, you know, really, really struggled. But of course, at the moment, uh, both North America and the European sides are the ones that are best, best funded and best organized in, in the tournament. Although that's not necessarily uh, representing itself uh, entirely in results across the board. Now, we were
0: talking earlier on the show about Colombia, which is a fascinating-sounding country. I've never been, but also its biodiversity, the remarkable things about it. But also, it's difficult to talk about that nation without talking about the the fact that it's a huge, you know, global producer of cocaine, and the way that has completely kind of, it seems, for a couple of decades battered the country out of shape politically. I mean, Pedro Escobar, I understand, was even attempting to stand to be president once and offered to pay off the national debt. What is the... What's happening now? Because at one time, the fatality rate, the murder rate, was just terrifying, I think. one In one year, I think 2002, 32,000 people died, which is like 80, 90 a day. What What is currently the state of, of playing the, in the war against cocaine, the war against the cartels?
1: So, um... There's been a big shift uh, since the president, Gustavo Petro, the first left wing president in Colombia's history, came into power towards the middle of last year because he declared that the war on drugs, the famous uh, war on drugs and the relationship that, the U- that Colombia had with the U.S. could be no more. And that all that that had done and achieved was actually uh, for it to decimate, as you said statistically, uh, the the population. It's his, it's population in terms of this sort of internecine war that's gone on for a couple of generations. For sure, Colombia, not just Colombia, but also Bolivia and Peru are huge producers of the coca crop. Uh, the coca crop historically, you know, was not made into cocaine. It's a crop which is used, uh, in various, you know, for various indigenous uh, uses and cuisine and, um, and the like and has done historically. But then it got discovered that, of course, it could be developed into being an, a narcotic. And that's when you know all hell broke loose uh, and it became an international market and of course then uh, you know it, the economics of it meant that the cartels moved in and not just the cartels but also uh, the the FARC the revolutionary armed forces of of, of Colombia um, and then there was a, you know a whole host of issues that emerged in the country which became massively militarized and as ever with these things led to Know, huge deaths of, of its own people. Where it's at at the moment is that there is a groundbreaking peace process in play, which is not universally successful, but it's certainly you know, hugely better than it was before in terms of reductions of, of violence. That's not um, uh, shifting across to a reduction in, in cocaine. Cocaine has gone up four times in production since the beginning of the pandemic, uh, to now again that's not exclusively colombian but the demand the international demand for cocaine seems to know no bounds at all
0: i mean that's a terrifying prospect that lies ahead i suppose for that country and others in the world and for people who consume cocaine because it seems there's no end to the appetite for it it creates its own market and at the same time as long as it's Ill- i'm not arguing for the decriminalization of drugs but as long as it is illegal it will of course attract criminal classes and i suppose the cartels the cartels also war amongst themselves so not only are they fighting the police sometimes even the army and also you know criminal agencies from abroad mainly the united states but also they're fighting each other the whole time i suppose
1: yeah it's the damage it's the it's the violence and the damage that is done which is the biggest obviously literal killer in this to give you a a sense of uh you know the finances of this just if we're looking at the uh, global drug trade, just cocaine, so not any other drug, just cocaine alone has the GDP of a small country internationally.
0: I mean, as we hold that thought, I remind us that I said earlier on that when uh, Pablo Escobar was trying to stand to be president of Colombia, he offered to pay off the country's national debt, which I think then stood at seven billion dollars. And that may have been so much you know, hyperbole, but one suspects possibly it wasn't.
1: Yeah, look. I mean, at at the time, uh, and to some extent still in his legacy, he was for sure the most important figure in in Colombia. And who knows what his net worth actually was? Because these things are almost impossible to to ascertain. And and even when we look into, you know, we we theorize about uh, net net worth in terms of the the cartels, we're actually only looking at things like drug production and drug trafficking. We're actually not looking at all the other businesses. That they're involved in. So uh, of of all the things that are far fetched about Pablo Escobar, I think the the thought that he might have been able to pay off Colombia's national debt is not that high up the chart.
0: Also, I think I might say under his regime, I think the cartel said to have had around 5000 taxi drivers on the payroll to run the cartel members around, but also to deliver their products. Anyway, we'll move away from that for the, for the time being because I understand there's been a fantastic, maybe the first of its kind, conference of, of Amazonian nations, some kind of Amazonian summit. What's happening there, John?
1: Yeah, the first um, Amazon summit in in 14 years. And, and actually, one of it's always really nice to talk about good news sometimes. And with uh, the Amazon, we tend to focus on crazy, expanding, accelerating rates of deforestation which can continue to imperil the earth and our existence but uh, actually when we tend to think of the amazon we think it's a uniquely brazilian affair but actually it features that the amazon uh, biomass and rainforest um, actually exists within a number of different countries actually that's been one of the problems historically is that it's always needed to coordinate a sort of conjoined policy making which it's never achieved but lula da silva brazilian president came into power at the beginning of uh, this year. And one of his promises, he vowed to bring all these countries um, together to reactivate what was, it, what was historically called the Amazon Cooperation Treaty Organization. So over the last couple of days, Brazil, Colombia, Ecuador, Guyana, Suriname, Peru, Bolivia, and Venezuela have met for a two-day summit in the north of, of Brazil to discuss and try and work through the big issues of, again, deforestation, climate change, of course, and really important, organized crime because organized crime does very much exist in these uh in these remote areas and to some extent lula has sort of um has staked his international reputation on slowing deforestation which currently is successful in uh, in brazil Ye- uh, year on year we compare uh, months this time this year with with last year last uh, the month of june deforestation was down 40% and july uh, was down 60% in Brazil year on year.
0: Well again, that's an astonishing thought. And we've also got, now we've seen, i was looking at a photograph this morning in the papers from Portugal, where it's got a man wearing just shorts and flip-flops with a galvanised bucket with water. He's throwing on this massive-looking fire. We know that fires are ravaging all parts of the world. Australia's had problems. Certainly California has very, relatively recently, parts of Europe. This is also, I understand now, affecting and affecting your parts of the world, John.
1: Well, yeah, it is um, hypothetically. I mean, I'm technically in North America, but, but uh, South America uh, is currently south of the equator, of course, uh, uh, experiencing winter. It's obviously the opposite of the northern hemisphere, or it should be, but it has crazy record temperatures uh, at the moment. Buenos Aires, capital of Argentina, hottest 1st of August in 117 years. Uh, Paraguay currently experiencing temperatures. Uh, In winter, again, I emphasise because it's winter temperatures of 37 to 39 degrees Celsius and chilly up in in the 40s. Um, uh, Argentina, uh, or Buenos Aires specifically, uh, before this summer, never had more than five heat waves in a summer. This summer, it had 10. Wow.
0: And again, I mean, this is a time of year when I suppose you're approaching... What your spring, in, or not you, because I know you're in the northern hemisphere. In the southern hemisphere, so they're approaching their spring at the moment. I wonder you know, they must be bracing themselves for potentially a hideous summer ahead around Christmas time or just before then.
1: It, it's just so unpredictable. I mean, for sure, what, what um, you know we know about, we've seen across the news uh, the wildfires that, of course, at the moment have been taking place in Europe, but we saw them in, in Australia not that long ago, the west coast in California and in the USA. There's just now this sheer unpredictability, not just of, of heat, but also of lack of rains, of unseasonal, even when the, the rains come, unseasonal, uh, really heavy rainfall and, and so on. It's just uh, not just temperature wise, you know, that it's off the chart. It's the predictability of the weather uh, and extreme events that are off the chart. And when you multiply that by the fact that a lot of countries in Latin America uh, perhaps don't have the infrastructure that, you know, a Europe or a North America might have. It means that when something uh, um, happens in the, you know, in the areas of climate disaster, it's not just felt all the more keenly, but it is, you know, it affects people in a life and death context all the more than it would do elsewhere.
0: And a very quick and finally, if I may, John, on the on the Mexican football league, the Mexican football scene. Why is it not as global, say, as the MLS, when it's such a well-regarded league with such amazing players produced in Mexico?
1: That's a really interesting question because. Um, it is, as you say, sort of a really big league in, of course, Mexico and more broadly Latin America. But historically, it's been seen as an exporting uh, league to, and to sometimes to MLS, but more broadly to, um, to 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 Europe. But what uh, the, the MLS is desperate to try and get hold of is some of the, uh, the fanaticism of the Liga Mex fans. So there is sort of a... a uh, fairly open discussion at the moment that there will be some Mexican teams invited into MLS in order to broaden that appeal, uh, all the more as things, as things move forward over the next few years, uh, on the path to, of course, the World Cup is going to take place in Canada, USA and Mexico in, uh,
0: 2026. Marvellous stuff as ever my our pal, John Bonfiglio. Catch you on the weekends with, uh, Martin Kellner, the MK Don himself and with us here on Talks and Chalk Radio. My